A couple of things for you real quickly just before we uh, get into the word this morning. Uh, a couple of follow-up pieces. You've seen a, a little video clip, a little, little snippet along the way about Great Commission Sunday. Great Commission Sunday is something we're going to participate together with every other Alliance Church. Um, our day is going to be on June the 12th that we're actually going to share in an offering. Uh, if you want to give before that, because you may give weekly or monthly or how you might give, you can do that. But we're going to participate with every Alliance Church in this offering. Now, when you came in this morning, you should have got, received one of these little cards. You can grab one on the way out. If you didn't, this will give you more information. Our goal would be a goal of $10,000 uh, towards our Great Commission Fund. Our goal as a church is giving 10% of our total income every year away to the Great Commission Fund, to our missions, our missions movement. This is a very specific offering we're asking everyone to participate in. So you can look at that, catch more information about it, what that means. Other item is, if you're out in the lobby at all, you notice a display table for mops. For some of you, that doesn't affect at all. But mops, mother of preschool children, we're happy to be seeing it restart, kind of reworked, re, uh, regenerate. Generated uh, and rebuilt. And if you are a mother of a preschool child and you want to stop by that table, or if you don't have preschool children, but you're willing to help in some way, participate, watch the kids be a part of it, stop by and they'll give you free coffee. Not on the spot, but in Essex, a coffee shop right on the corner, Uncommon Grounds, they'll give you a little card like this, get you free coffee there. It's fantastic coffee. And so stop by and get some information, participate. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, MOPS eligible, but I went and got one of these so I can show you, and now I'm keeping it and not giving it back. So there you go. Um, th they won't fall for that twice, but uh, go and stop by and participate. We're glad, so glad to have uh, MOPS back and getting ready to go again, and you can participate in that. This morning, we're going to look in God's Word together. We're going to finish up a series that we've been in for a number of weeks now uh, through the later, later winter and into spring and up close and personal. We've been looking in the Gospel of John and looking at seven signs. John writes down seven miracles. Now, there's all sorts of miracles. In fact, John says there's more miracles than I can even record, more miracles than any, any of the books that could record, the books of the Bible could record. But he says specifically, I'm documenting these because these are signs. These are things that I'm writing down because these things actually help convince me that Jesus was who he said he was. And then he says this, and I'm writing them down because they can convince me, and I'm hoping when you read it, it will convince you. That's why John gave, the, gave those stories to us. Now, we're going to look at uh, one, the last of these miracles, but before jumping in to take a look at it, there's something I want to talk about real quick as a starting place everyone thinks about or has thought about at some time. There's a question that, we, that comes up in our minds at times, and I want you to know it's not a Christian question. It's not just a believer's question. It's a question that happens in life, and every one of us have these moments, sometimes frequently. The question is this, why would a good God allow bad things? Why would a good and loving God allow bad things to happen in people's lives and bad things in this world? As I said, it's not a Christian question. It's a world question. In fact, what's interesting, even people who reject God and don't believe in God believe in him when bad things happen. They believe in him long enough to say, what's the deal with this? You know, God, if you're supposed to exist, then how does a good God allow bad things to happen? Now, for some of us, this is a question that has been in your life which has kept you from placing your faith in God. You could be here this morning with a friend, with a family member, and you're not a follower of Jesus. And quite honestly, one of the reasons why you're slow to engage with the story of Christ, the reason you're slow to engage with this God, is because in your mind, you're thinking that very question. You know, how do I follow a God that claims to be a loving God but allows these bad things? 
For some of us, this is a question that has caused us to question our faith. There are some of you that have had some things happen in your life, and because of that, you begin to say, well, where's God? What's the deal? What's the, what's the, what's the benefit? If they, bad things are going to happen, well, then why should I believe in Him? Why should I follow Him? We all know what it's like at times to have these moments come where it actually begins to erode our faith a little bit because of something that's happened. We've had that question. For some of us here today, this is a very real question, and it's a very real, real question right now. What I mean by that is we're not just talking about something that could be out there. You're going through something. You're experiencing something that right now, something has happened in your life. Something in your past comes up to to haunt you. Something perhaps has happened to someone that you love. Uh, Maybe in general, you're looking at the news. You're trying to figure out a, a, a war in the Ukraine. And there's things that you look at and you think it just doesn't make sense. Something that has you questioning your faith. Maybe for some of you, the question you're asking about a good God and a loving God in a bad world is actually causing a little slow death to your faith. So let's talk about it this morning. We're, you know, we've all asked that question. I've asked it and so have you. But now let's be honest. Let's take one more step real quick. Let's be real honest. When we think about the bad things in the world, we always focus and think about the bad things that are out there, not the bad things that are in here. We always think about the bad things that are out there. Now, I have a question for you. I'm going to ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. Don't nod your head. Here's the question. Have you ever done something really bad in your life? And see, I just saw two of you nod your head immediately because you can't help it. Yeah, of course. Or I, the answer is, of course. So if we're going to nod, we all nod. Of course we have. I got that. Again, no raised hands, no, no nodding of heads. Have you ever had something in your life that was bad you really wanted to do, but you didn't do it solely because you knew you'd get caught and you don't want to get caught? I mean, something you would have done, but the fear is, man, I don't want to get arrested. I don't want people to know. I don't want to be exposed. And so let's be honest with ourselves. Things that we might have done if we knew that we'd never get caught. Answer to that is, yeah, those are there as well. Now, again, what's interesting, whenever we struggle with the evil that's out there, we never talk about the evil that's in here. I mean, people always say the idea that, you know, well, how does God allow that to happen? But you never have people say, how does God allow this to happen? Right? How does God allow the bad out there to happen? We never have the question that says, well, how does God allow me to happen? It's always the bad out there. Now, for many of us, we'll kind of go, it kind of goes like this. Well, if God is good, he would have done something about, not the war in Ukraine, the way it should go. If God is good, then he ought to do something about me. But it doesn't work that way. We never do. I mean, here's what we do. We go, no, 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 Scott, you don't understand. I'm not talking about, I'm not, I'm not talking about the, the bad, my bad. That's not the bad stuff I'm talking about. I'm talking about the really bad. I'm not talking about my bad. I'm talking about the really, really bad stuff that's out there. Well, let me tell you what the difference is between bad and really bad. The, the bad stuff is what I do, and the really bad stuff is what you do. That's the difference right? That's the difference. You know, we look at ourselves, it's bad, but when I look at what you do, really bad. So that's the difference. That's how we delineate it in our heads. I'm not so bad, but all this other stuff in the world. All that to say, we're not real honest with ourselves whenever we have the question, why does a loving God allow bad things? We're not real honest about it by taking a close look at ourselves. Now, leave that there for a little bit, and now let's get into our story. 
Now, a man named Lazarus is in John chapter 11. Here's our story for this week. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Now, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And yet you're going to go back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by, his, by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Now, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. <clears throat> now his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Now, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. <clears throat> but now let us go to him. And then Thomas says to the rest of the disciples, well, let us go as well that we may die with him. So there's our text this morning. Some background. We talked about this before. This will be our last sermon in the series. We talked about the, the, the path of ministry that Jesus followed for most of his life was between Galilee and Jerusalem. Very slight variations, north and south, pretty much in a straight line. And in Galilee area, people loved Jesus. That was home base. He went there to recharge and refocus. He'd go there. The swarms of people would come, listen to him. They loved hearing him. They loved following Jesus. Uh, Jerusalem, not so much. Some of the people loved him, but there was the center of all the religious leaders, and they absolutely hated him. Now, preceding this story of Lazarus, uh, Jesus is in the area of Jerusalem. He goes to the temple, and he gets into another debate uh, with the leaders, the Pharisees. And in that debate, they basically say this to him. Now, I can't read all these stories for you. It's all, it's all there, so you can read it yourself. But basically, it goes like this. So, Jesus, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? The Pharisees towards Jesus, the religious leaders. Now, how long are you going to do? How long are you keep us in suspense here? I mean, uh, are, are you or are you not the Messiah? So let's not dance around the question, Jesus. Just really clearly tell us, are you the Messiah? Just tell us. And Jesus said, I did tell you. I have told you. Yeah, but you don't believe me. And you won't believe me. In fact, he says, I've gone beyond telling you. I've done all sorts of miracles. I've given you all sorts of signs. And, and I've done things that you all know only God could do. By your own theology, apart from God, these things can't happen. And I've done these things so that you would see them and that you would believe, but you still don't believe. And it's at that point where Jesus is almost like, okay, I'm all in. And it's kind of like, you know, I'm going to do something next that you're not going to believe. I mean, you, you need to believe it, but you're just not going to believe it. And this is what the lead up is to this story of Lazarus. Now, about a, about a day to a half a day's walk is where Jesus was at that point in time from Bethany. Jesus' good friend Lazarus has gotten sick. And now by sick, we're not talking about he's got a cold. Clearly, they understood that he was sick and his sickness was dire. I mean, if something doesn't change, he's going to die. Very sick. So Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, they send a messenger to go find Jesus. 
So the messenger goes, and by word of mouth, they could figure out where Jesus was at. I mean, where he went, people knew where he was at. So they go and they find Jesus. They get to Jesus and they say, listen, Mary and Martha sent us, the one that you love is sick. Now, just a side point there, real quickly, real stop. I mean, imagine being such a close friend to Jesus that they don't even have to use your name. I mean, that's kind of something, right? So it's baseball season, and of course, the Yankees are doing relatively well right now. Of course, compared to the Red Sox, they're doing incredibly well. Um, they're doing really well. And there's, a, of course, a, a, a hitter for the Yankees named Aaron Judge. And he's just a towering guy. If you don't know him, he's just, I don't know, six, seven, six, eight. He's just huge, and he's just, you know, off the map right now. Great. I mean, like Aaron Judge. I mean, it would be like you visiting New York City and bumping into Aaron Judge and saying, hey, Aaron, the, the one you love says hi. And he goes, oh, Scott Slocum, how's he doing? <laughs> right? I mean, it's not going to happen, but that's the kind of picture. They go, the one you love is sick. And Jesus goes, Lazarus, he's sick. So, I mean, imagine having such a close relationship that, you know, they don't even have to say your name. Now, Jesus' response, so here's the deal. The one you love is sick. Jesus' response in verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, right there, Jesus made a statement that ought to get your attention. He made a statement, and here's the thing, what he just said. He just said, sickness for God's glory. Now, that should make you think about it for a second. Because you see, we don't think of sickness for God's glory. We think of sickness as in bad things, sickness as in the evil one, sickness as in this world, sickness as this broken world. Jesus says, oh, it's okay, this is for God's glory. Wait a minute, sickness for God's glory? Cancer for God's glory? I mean, that should get your attention for a little bit to kind of go, you know, I like it and I don't. Sickness for God's glory. So apparently in this story, and here's the point, Apparently, Jesus believes that bad things can happen to good people. Of course, we know that. It's true. But on top of that, apparently, Jesus believes that good things can happen. I mean, bad things can happen to good people and can be part of some bigger design. That's the part where we all kind of go, ooh, I don't know that I like that. And not only is it not a proof that God doesn't exist, but it's actually a proof that underscore that God exists. Now, this is important. Now, this sickness that uh, Lazarus is dealing with is unsolicited, which means this is not the result of sin. This is not the result of his bad choice. This is not the result of someone else's bad choice in his life. That this is natural causes. He's come down with something, and he's sick. Uh, uncalled for, unprovoked un, uh, sickness. Nothing he asked for. And apparently, he's going to die right out of nature. And how about that? Right out of nature. Sickness for God's glory. I mean, wouldn't it be something, COVID-19 for God's glory? Now, please know, I got to qualify this now. I wrote that in my notes this week, and then this morning I crossed it out. I said, you know, if I say that, sure shooting, someone's going to say, you're saying God put this on the world as some kind of curse. Do you know how many people, blah, 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 blah. So just back up the truck for just a minute. And not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying, wait a minute, so God could take any sickness in this world and somehow use what the evil one has put into this world and use it for good? Absolutely. Sickness for God's glory. Now catch this. This idea is so difficult to grasp. This idea that sickness might be allowed for the glory of God that it's so hard to get. 
It's as if John knows in this moment the trouble that people are having processing this. It's almost like he understands that who are reading this story are, are thinking this going, oh, I don't like that. Can this possibly be true? How does that work? And so what John does real quickly, he jumps back into the story in verse 5. Now Jesus loved, he says, now Jesus loved uh, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now interesting, he jumps back in to say, let me just remind you that he actually loves these people. It's as if John is going, listen, um, uh, Lazarus is, is sick and Jesus loves them. But he doesn't do anything. See, doesn't that a little odd? He's sick. You find out he's sick. You find out he's going to die. Jesus does nothing. None of that makes sense. So John jumps in and goes, but, but, but listen, I know it sounds confusing. I know it sounds odd, but I just need you to know he actually loves them. Jesus actually loves these people, but it doesn't look like that. And sometimes in this life, it doesn't look like that, does it? Sometimes in this life in which we live, it doesn't look like that. And here's what is amazing. This miracle by Jesus, it, it, it really wasn't nearly for those people then as much as it is for you and you and you and you. It's for us. It's for this moment. So Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick and he stays for two days. Now, this is astounding actually, right? I mean, Jesus has healed strangers, total strangers, Jesus walks along and sees someone who's a total stranger and he heals them. Here, the one he loves is sick and Jesus does nothing. That should get your attention. And to be honest, it's a little troublesome. Because in our world, when Jesus hears that the one he loves is sick, Jesus should be running to go deal with it. Jesus is up to something that he doesn't even flinch and he stays there. So two days go by. And then Jesus says to his disciples, according to our text, okay, let's go to Bethany now. Now, at this point, the disciples speak up and they go, uh, Jesus, the last time we were, we were where you want to go, they got angry at you and they tried to stone you. Now, maybe you don't remember that, but we remembered it because it scared us. Now, you want to go back to the place where they're going to stone you again. Uh, so here's the deal. The real issue, Jesus, isn't that you want to go there. The issue is you want us to go with you. The issue there is you shouldn't go, but clearly we shouldn't go. So here's a rule of thumb in case you missed it. Rule of thumb is this. You don't want to be standing next to someone being stoned because stone throwers are just not that accurate. So if you're next to someone being stoned, you're going to get stoned. So their point of this is, Jesus, in case you forgot, uh, we really don't want to go there. So if you're going to go, could you go without us? I mean, that's what they're kind of lobbying for. So there's this tension. So Jesus says this with this tension in place. He says in verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And at that point in the story, the disciples are doing the same thing you're doing right now, and they're going, what are you talking about? You know, Jesus always does this. You know, and I can see them going, what? what? Jesus, you always do this. You, you, right when we think we're connecting with you, you talk about something that makes no sense. You know, it's like that one time you're, we're talking about lost sheep, and next thing you know, you're talking about us. I mean, we still can't figure out how you did that switch on us. But then later, it makes sense. So here you are. What, you know, the question you're asking is, do you walk at, do, do you stumble at night? Well, of course we stumble at night. There's no light. What does that have to do with anything? 
Now, if you just read the story, you ought to be saying the same thing. And so here's the meaning behind that. Jesus is saying this. Listen, guys, I'm the light of the world, and I'm right here in front of you. And you don't even realize it. I mean, it's never going to get more clear than it does with me right now. It's never going to be easier to see than with me. My time on this earth is limited. The clock is ticking, and I'm going to be leaving you. Now, in the dark, you stumble around trying to figure out things like how come bad things happen and how can bad things have God's purpose in it. In the dark, you stumble over that. But I'm here to show you in the light of who I am how my Father can use that which is bad and how he can use it for good. I've turned the light on here to deliver you from bumping your heads in the middle of the night. Now, here's the key thing. Key key piece. He's saying to them this. Listen, when I'm in the equation, it always makes sense. Friends, when you put Jesus Christ into any life equation, then it makes sense. When he is not in the equation, you're going to bump your head and stub your toe because you're in the darkness. So that's what he's saying. But just as quickly as he says it, then he changes. Now here's what he says next. So you're waiting for some great explanation. Here's what he says, verse 11. After this, he said, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. So Lazarus is asleep, and I'm going to wake him up. Who's in? Who's going with me? Do you ever ever get asked to do something by someone that makes perfectly good sense to do it, but because you don't want to do it, you have to create an excuse why you can't? Do you ever do that? So like, I'll play golf. I'll go out and play a round of golf and 18, 36 holes one day. And then the next day, my wife will say, hey, I want to go to the mall. Oh, boy. I, uh, I don't think I can stand that long. I mean, I got, you know, my right, that knee and shoulder and, you know, and my buddy calls and says, hey, want to golf? Yeah, good. I'm feeling good. I'm in. But, you know, you, you create this scenario that gets you out of that which you don't want to be a part of. Now, remember in this story, the disciples don't want to go back with Jesus to that place. They don't want to be stoned. So they begin to give Jesus medical advice, which is interesting. Oh, you said he's sleeping. Well, you know, if he's sleeping, it means he's resting comfortably. If he's resting comfortable, comfortably, uh, Christ is over. He's going to be fine. So why don't we let him get his rest? You know, don't bother him. Let him get his rest, get a little fed, and, you know, get some strength back. And maybe we can stop by some, or maybe he can come see us. I mean, that's the, that's the thought. That's exactly what they're saying. If he's sleeping, he's going to be okay. We really don't need to go. They give him advice. So Jesus makes it real clear, okay? Let me say this differently. He's dead. Lazarus is dead, and we're going to go wake him up. Now, next in the story comes some absolutely horrible words for Mary and for Martha and for Lazarus. Horrible for them, wonderful for you. Painful for them, delightful for us. Here's what happens in verse 14. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But now let's go to him. Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad I wasn't there. Uh, That's just nothing you want to hear from Jesus when he's your best friend and he loves you. 
I'm glad I wasn't there. Make sure you get the whole part of there. But for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Now, we know that Jesus is talking about his disciples, but, we, but don't miss this. He's also, when he says, for your sake, it's for your sake. It's for us. He goes, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake. Listen very carefully. For the sake of every parent who has ever had to bury a child. For the sake of every child who's had to bury a parent too early. For the sake of every wife who's had to bury a husband. And for the sake of every husband who's ever had to bury a wife. For the sake of every friend who's ever had to bury a friend. For all of us who have been on that stinging side of grief and pain, Jesus is actually going into this world to give to us a new view. A new view for these heartbreaking moments. For any person who's ever been through the grief of losing someone, Jesus says, well, there's a different way to see this. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Because I'm going to show you something about what I can do. And now he comes, now the story comes to one of the funniest verses in the Bible, though most of us don't see it as all that funny. But it actually is, verse 16. Then Thomas says to the rest of the disciples, well, let us go that we may die with him. You got to catch this. Jesus says, I'm going to go. Lazarus is dead. And they're sure Jesus is going to die. I like Thomas. So he goes, okay, Lazarus is dead. Jesus is going to be dead. We might as well go and die with him. Let's go. I mean, these are the kind of guys you want with you. I got to tell you right now. I mean, if you're looking for good friends, these are the guys. You know, he's dead. He's going to be dead. Let's go. We'll just go die too. And they all go. I love these guys. They're all in, even in death at this point. Now, so here's the deal. This is what's happening with Jesus and his disciples. But what's happening back at Bethany where Lazarus is at? Think about this right now. So Jesus is having this discussion with his disciples. What do you think they're talking about back in Bethany? One topic. Where's Jesus? Right? That's it. Where's Jesus? That's the only, copy. That's the only, that's the only question. Where's Jesus? You sent the messenger, he knows every day they're watching, Lazarus is now dead, Jesus still isn't showing up. I mean, he missed, the, uh, he missed the embalming time, he missed the wake time, he missed the sick time, he missed the burial time, he missed the days after the burial. This is getting embarrassing. Very sincerely, if you're them and Jesus is your friend and somebody says to you, hey, where's your buddy? This is embarrassing. You have no good answer. Uh, I don't know. Must have been tied up. Verse 17, so go, Jesus goes. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Now when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, well, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, and she said, and he's asking for you. 
So when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Now, there's a lot here with a little time left, so let's have at it. By now, Lazarus has been dead. He's been in the tomb for four days, probably dead for at least five. Martha finds out that Jesus is close by. Finally, she's coming, and she runs to meet him. And what does she say to Jesus? She says the exact same thing that you and I would say. You know, had you come when we called you, my brother would still be alive. She blames Jesus. And so that you know, it's completely appropriate. See, if God is all sovereign and all powerful, it's completely appropriate to say and think, well, he could have done something. And that's where she's at. Had you been here, we wouldn't be here right now in this moment. That's good news, right? I mean, that's good news. It's good news because people who are close to Jesus will find themselves in the exact same situation close to Jesus, and yet dealing with some kind of heartache or some kind of issue. And it's not sin, and it's not wrong to say, you know, if you've been here, and that's what she's saying, Jesus, this is kind of your fault. I mean, just so you know, you could have made a difference. And is it good to, isn't it good to know that there's nothing wrong with your faith when you have those moments of questioning why God didn't show up like you thought he would? There's nothing wrong with your faith in that moment. And I love that with whatever faith she has left, she kind of sums it all up, musters it all up to say this. She's trying to use it where she says, I know you're late, and I know that this is really your fault, but even right now, God would give to you whatever you ask him to do. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Now, it's interesting, immediately, she believes that Jesus has just gone into preacher mode. She believes that Jesus has just gone on into what I'll call the Christian preacher mode. You've been there, right? You're going through some horrible tragedy in life, and some Christian shows up and says, well, everything happens for a purpose. What a great sermon to preach when you're in a crisis. Everything happens for a purpose. Christians do this all the time where someone's in need, and we go, you know what? There's a sermon I just heard that you need to hear. I'm going to get a copy of that sermon. If you can hear it, it's going to change your life. Christians do this as well. I love this line. Just trust God. It'll all work out in the end. And like, and off they go to buy their groceries. You know, you're stuck in turmoil. Eh, Just trust God. It'll all work out. So she's in this idea that he's in preaching mode. And so she says, yeah, no, I know that someday when it's all over, there'll be a resurrection and he'll, he'll be alive. And Jesus says to her, listen, I'm not in, I'm not in preaching mode. I'm in personal mode here. He says to her, you know, I just want you to know, I am the resurrection and the life. It's me. Martha, you're looking at the resurrection. You're looking at the one who brings the dead back to life. You're looking at the guy. 
And whoever believes, he says this, and he looks right at her and says, and whoever believes in me will live, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he says to her, do you believe this? And let's be honest. This is a hard one to grasp, right? So let's be honest here. So first, it's hard to grasp on this side of the resurrection of Jesus. On that side, before the resurrection of Jesus, I would say it's impossible to grab hold of that, that he's the resurrection and life. We got the vantage point from where we're at going, yeah, yeah, I see it. But she wouldn't see it. And so it's so difficult to grasp. I love her. She answers the best that she can, and she says, yes, I believe. But look what she says. Yes, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. She doesn't say, I believe you're the resurrection and life. She goes, yeah, I believe you're the Messiah. Friends, about as good as it gets right then. The resurrection life, that's a, bit of, that's a bit of a stretch. Now with that, Martha leaves. She goes back. And when she goes back to Mary, she doesn't go, guess what? I saw Jesus. And he said, Lazarus is going to live again. See, this is not part of the thought process. And even when she said, even now, God will grant you what you wish, she's not thinking that he's coming back to dead because everyone knows, you know, if you get there before he dies, yes, you can heal him. If you get there right at the moment he dies, yeah, pretty good. But once he's dead, he's dead. I mean, that's the thought. Done. You missed it. So she goes back to Mary and says, you know, Jesus is here. He's on his way, and he's asking for you. Mary bolts and runs to Jesus. What's the first words out of her mouth? This is your fault. If you'd been here, same words. Had you been here, he would still be alive. But Jesus sees her weeping, and he sees the depth of her pain, and he sees all of these friends who have come, and he sees the depth of their pain, and he's moved to tears in verse 35. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. I used to love this verse as a kid in Sunday school because every year you had to memorize Bible verses, and this is the one I knew I could get right. <laughs> I can nail this one. I can still nail it to this day. Years later, I still got it. Jesus wept. I remember as a kid, we look at this one going, man, look at that. Who, who, who writes a whole verse, just those two words? And yet, it's profound. You see, in that moment, Jesus feels the sting that every single one of you have felt when you've buried a loved one. He feels the sting of the hurt of every heart that has had to put someone in the ground. Now, a side note, do you know who else would have been there? All the other disciples. Specifically, who would have been there in this story? As a part watching it all, John was there, but you know who else? Guy named Peter. Now, some of you would say, okay, got it, Peter. Why is that important? Because Peter would later write a letter in which he says to people this, listen, whatever you're going through, whatever battle you face, whatever trouble you're carrying, here's what he says, Cast all of your cares on Jesus because I've seen it and he cares for you. Don't forget, he's watching this. And so later he would say to us, cast all your cares on him because he really cares. I know this. I've seen it. I've experienced it. So Jesus weeps deep grief, not for Lazarus because don't forget, he knows the end story. He knows what's coming for Lazarus. He feels the hurt and the grief and the pain, the heartache of Mary and Martha and every one of us who've said goodbye. He sees the pain of their loss. And now these Jewish friends of the sisters are there and they see Jesus weeping and they make a statement that says, oh, look how he loved him. 
But now we show up in the story. So you always wonder when you see some of these stories, are we in there? We are. Here we are, verse 37. But some of them, this is us, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? See, here's where we show up. Oh, how he loved them. But wait a minute. If he loved them, why wouldn't he have done something? We show up in the story when we kind of go, you know, cautiously, but if he could open the blind man's eyes, I mean, listen, he, he healed strangers and he didn't do anything here. There we are again. And so then he says, well, take me to the tomb. So they take him to the tomb. And then he says this. I mean, he said, before we do anything else, I'm going to offer a prayer. Now, as they get there, Martha has to say something. He goes, I'm going to open the tomb. And immediately, uh, Martha says, um, well, first, he goes, let's open the tomb. Everybody there would go, no. And he goes, yeah, I want you to open the tomb. And so Martha, his own sister, has to intercede in this very awkward moment. And he kind of goes, you know, Jesus, he's been dead for four days. I mean, five days maybe here, and you know, we're talking the Middle East, it's hot out. And bottom line, Jesus, you open that tomb, and it's going to smell bad. So this is his sister talking. And then Jesus says this. He said, well, didn't I tell you that if you believe in me, you're going to see the glory of God? And the people are kind of like, well, yeah, yeah, we want to see the glory of God. What we don't want to do is smell the former glory of Lazarus. That's, that's what we don't want here. But he says, open the tomb. So they do. And then he prays. And here's what he prays in verse 41. So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked and said, Father, looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for their benefit, for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So you have this incredible moment that there, there's this tension that happens and Jesus offers this prayer and he says, Father, thank you for hearing me. And it's almost like he probably goes in a whisper mode. Father, thank you for hearing me. By the way, I know you hear me all the time, but these people don't know it. So I'm, I'm saying this for their benefit. Because he wants you to know that your heavenly father, his heavenly father, listens and hears and responds. And he knows you desire of your heart. And so when you pray it, he's, he's already with you. So he goes, thank you, Father, for hearing me. And I want these people to know it as well. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. Now you got to remember that that day, Lazarus would have been legs together with strips of cloth wrapped tightly with embalming spices and a rag over his head, a big cloth over his head. So quite literally, he'd be walking out like this. You know, I mean, this would be the original mummy, the mummy lives. I mean, here it is. And Jesus actually has to say to them, well, go uncut him. Cut the, cut him. Why? Because I'm not running up there first either. And none of you, you're going to go, well, I don't know. And Jesus goes, stop it. Get up there and, and release him. Now listen, they all have seen this. Here's the ending. All these people have seen this. They know he was dead. They know he was dead. There's not a mistake here. Listen, there's no confusion. He was dead and they knew he was dead. They were a part of the embalming process. They know he was dead. No mistake, dead and now he's alive. Immediately, a group of them run to Jerusalem to talk to the, the high priest and the Pharisees to tell them what's just happened because it's a big deal. The dead back to life. The Pharisees get together, and here's our last passage. Hear what they say. 
And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This would be all of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now, I look at that and I think, man, how profound. He got it right. You know, better one man die, Jesus, for the sins of the world than all die. But that is not his viewpoint. So here's the dialogue. They get together. They refuse to accept that Jesus is who he said he was. They refuse it. Even though they've seen it, they refuse to accept it. So they have to come up with a plan. So they say this, man, if we let him go on like this, all the people are going to follow him. And if they all follow him, they're going to lead to an insurrection. If they do that, the Romans are going to come. They're going to kill us all. They're going to take the temple away. We've got to do something. So they come up with a plan. You know what? Instead of him leading a revolution, let's just kill him. So they do. They kill him on the day that we know as Good Friday. They kill him, Good Friday, the cross, the tomb. But they have no idea on Thursday and Friday that Sunday's coming. They have no clue. Their thought process is we've got to put an end to this. If we let him go, all of these people will follow him. How many people do you think? A couple thousand? A hundred thousand? And so they kill him. What's the result? The result today? One third of the world says that they are Christians. They were concerned about a group following him. And now 2,000 years later, one third of the world would say, I believe in Jesus Christ. They thought if they let him go, that keeping going on like this, people will believe in him. They'll revolt against Rome. The Romans will come take away everything that we have here. There's so much to lose. They had no idea. I no idea how God could use bad for good. They had no idea that the evil that they put together against Jesus would end up in you being here today. Think about that. They had no clue that the bad that they had planned would result in you being here and would result in you saying and in me saying, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. They had no clue. Now remember, Lazarus came back to life, but he was going to die another day. He was going to die again. But now it's going to be different. You see, friends, that's what transformed all these disciples. That's why all these disciples would go and preach the gospel around the world because they'd actually seen that death doesn't win. They saw it in Lazarus and they saw it in Jesus, so they got it. So nothing would stop them. Why? Because nothing can defeat them. That simple. Remember, Lazarus would die again, but now it's going to be different. Because you see, now when Jesus said, well, he's going to rise again. See, at that point for her, it was head knowledge. Yeah, 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 I get it. I know the story, end of the, end of the, you know, end of life, resurrection of the body. But now it's, I got it, because now I've seen it. And now I know it to be true. How does a good God exist in a bad world? Jesus shows us. 
He shows us that this incredibly good God has a plan that takes the worst that, and that this broken world can throw at you and he can make it good. He can look in any moment where any one of us have buried a loved one and thought, how horrible is this? And say, it's not over. And it's not done. And John wrote all of these things down. Why? John said, I'm going to write all this down because I was a skeptic. And when I saw it, I believed. And I'm going to write it down so that when you read it, you believe. And if you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, why not? Eyewitnesses would tell you you can believe it. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we have this in front of us as incredible encouragement. When you're standing at the graveside of a loved one, you stand there and you say, it's not over because Jesus conquered death. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. May you be encouraged by God's word. Stand, please, let's pray. Father, this concept, sickness for your glory. Boy, I love that and don't like it all at the same time. What I do love is the fact that we live in a world where it's broken and where sin and bad happens, and yet your plan is better than all that. I like the fact that living in this broken world is not the end. And I love the fact that though this broken world still exists, your plan is better. And I hope that every one of us would see that. I know there are people right now going through such difficult, difficult times. I hope that they would see that you have won out. You're the the victor here. You're the winner. And as we follow you, we win. And I pray for every one of us that it be this encouragement from your word that would remind us again that you are the resurrection and the life. We follow you. We believe in you. Nothing can harm us. This world can't touch us. Dismiss us today in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.